0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Bill was asking if that was me when I was younger, <laughs> just just to throw me off base, you know. But it is it is getting weird out there. I I was at Jiffy Lube yesterday, and uh, I was checking out and. I remembered that in my briefcase, which I didn't have with me, I had had printed off a discount that I'd received over the web, you know, via email. So I mentioned that to the guy and he said, oh yeah, I I can give you that discount and he started scrolling down through the different kinds of discounts, you know, web discounts, $10 off, free oil change, and to my shock, he clicked on the senior discount Without even checking, you know. So, if you have your Bibles, I would like to start by looking at 1 Samuel 17. This is um, the story of David and Goliath to get us started. I'm going to be skipping around a little bit so it won't flow verse by verse. But uh, let me begin in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. Verse 2, And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. Then a champion came out, from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was nine feet, nine inches. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. My notes say that's about 125 pounds. He also had bronze um, uh, shin protectors. Let's see, where would I go? on his legs, and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of the spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. And he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Again, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. When Saul and all the Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And you remember how David had come from the field and his father had told him to take some food to his brothers who were with the troops. And uh, so David shows up on the scene and we read in verse 26 that David spoke to the men who were standing by him saying, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt? The armies of the living God. The story goes on, and he tries on Saul's armor, and it's too heavy and clunky for him, so he sheds it. And then we read in verse 40 that he took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch. And his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Verse 45, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, a spear, a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. And then picking up in verse 48, then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it. And struck the Philistine on his forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in David's hand. So David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled and the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and to the gates of Ekron. I want to focus in on verse 40. And he took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had. David chose five smooth stones, and put them in his shepherd's bag. And I want to think about these stones in a metaphorical way this morning, because when I was in seminary, um, pretty early in my experience there, I was exposed to a very radical professor named Dr. Charles Farah. And uh, Dr. Farah looked at us quite early in the semester, and he said, you all are pretty excited about being ministers but I want to tell you right now that only a few of you will survive. And indeed since then um, I have been experientially convinced of the spiritual warfare that surrounds every minister, but not just ministers, every saint um, of the living God. There's an intense uh, battle and conflict that is constant. And we read in um, First Peter, of course, that very familiar verse about, be sober, be on the alert, your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to, de- to devour. But by God's grace, um, I've not only survived, but I believe that I've somehow thrived. And I've been asking myself, what are the stones in my shepherd's bag that have enabled me to defeat the giants in my life? I wonder if they're the same, or some of them are the same as yours. What are those ground zero unshakable core spiritual convictions that God has worked into my born-again DNA at a cellular level. Now certainly we're all different. The stones God has built into your life will be somewhat different than mine. So while I share my five smooth stones with you this morning, I want to ask you to be thinking about what has God built into your life in an unshakable way. If you had to sort of boil down the things that God has taught you into five smooth stones or rocks, what would they be? I'll be um, rehearsing various themes and stories that I've told you before. I pray that you'll be patient and Gracious about that, but I'm believing for fresh revelation, I'm believing for deeper application, and uh, for a high impact in our lives as we move forward in our faith. Let's pray, let's pray just that together. Father, thank you so much for this moment in time and for the preaching of your word. We uh, do pray for fresh eyes Lord to see greater revelation of who we are in you and what's expected and what will help us. We pray Lord for deeper applications than we've ever been able to possibly make before and we pray that it'll have a high impact and eternal value in your kingdom. I pray that you would anoint me in this message because Without that, it's just words in the wind. So we praise you and we bless you as we walk through your word together. In Jesus' name, let's say it together. Amen. So the five stones in my shepherd's bag, what are they? The first stone is my final authority is the word of God. You've heard me say that before, or one of the other elders or ministers here. Psalm 1 is the secret to happiness and success, or it says that the secret to happiness and success is to delight in and to focus your life around the Word of God. It starts out, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted beside streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and his leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. If you unpack the very first word of that psalm, blessed, blessed means um, supremely happy or fully satisfied, and it also means successful in life. And so there's a real clue there that if we center our lives, if we organize our lives around the Word of God, that we will be successful in life. I want to remind you that the word is called our meat and our milk, our bread, our honey. We're told to long for it, to love it, to eat it, to meditate on it, and to contend for it. We read, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Psalm 1 is the center scripture of our home. It's, uh, this is a picture of Psalm 1 hanging over the mantle of our living room fireplace. We don't, as a rule, have scriptures all over our home, but, but we do have this one. And I believe it is acting as the rudder of the good ship Grinnell. Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he went even further in the book of John, chapter 14, verse 21, where he says that love for God is is evidenced by obedience to his commandments. Let me read that verse to you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. I want to uh, take the position right now that it's precisely here that the word of God is established as not just something to love, but something that is authoritative and meant to be our final authority everyone has a final authority in their lives. Have you ever thought of that fact? Everyone is guided by some kind of final authority whether they realize it or not. Michael Medved is a Hollywood clinic who uh, critic, excuse me, who's spoken for decades about how Hollywood films used to emphasize do your duty, but how the last few decades, the, the emphasis has been what? Follow your heart. Follow your heart. And it hasn't changed. Follow your heart. And yet, what do we read in Scripture about the heart? You know where I'm headed with this. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? Jesus is even... Uh, he's even more um, articulate about this he says the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man for out of the heart come evil thoughts murders, adulteries fornications, thefts false witness slanders these are the things which defile the man In other words, the human heart is the actual location of evil in this world, or a a major place of evil. Some have called it the locus of evil. The heart is characterized in Scripture as a follower, not a leader. So we're not meant to allow our heart to lead us, but rather it's this precious thing that is easily manipulated and needs to be behind the protection of the front line where it can be guarded. For example, here's some evidence that it's a follower and not a leader. It follows what we value. For example, Jesus said, where your treasure is, or if you value treasure, there will your heart be also. It follows what we look at. If a man looks at a woman uh, lustfully to commit adultery, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. Sometimes it follows what we say. Proverbs twenty-one twenty-three says, He who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. So we want to guard our hearts and understand that our hearts are a very precious thing but they definitely follow, We're not, they're not to be what we lead with. One last scripture, Proverbs 4.23 says what? Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. So our final authority can't be our heart. Our culture says science is our final authority or at least implicitly it says that. If you turn on the TV, you see um, commentator after commentator quoting this study and that study and this research and that research. Well, Personally, I I just love science. I love research. I love studies. Um, I can get on my computer and dig around for a long time trying to uh, come up with some clearer understanding of a topic. I read an interesting quote yesterday that said, um, the cure for boredom is curiosity, and there's no cure for that. <laughs> Isn't that a great... That was, that was Dorothy Parker, who is a poet. Um, I've always appreciated... Uh, This quote by Sir Francis Bacon, Let no man or woman out of conceit or laziness think or believe that anyone can search too far or be too well informed in the book of God's words or the book of God's works, religion or science. Instead, let everyone endlessly improve their understanding of both. We believe that all truth is God's truth, whether it's in the Bible or outside of the Bible. If it's true, we believe it's of God. I also like the words of Dr. Stanley Smith, who's a longtime marriage researcher. He said that research is the currency of truth in our culture. And so if we can speak uh, knowledgeably about research as well as the scriptures, we become very effective missionaries in our culture. But you know what, for all that goodness, I love the Word of God more. I love science, but I love the Word of God more. I consulted with my son-in-law, Jason, about um, what is the status of the reliability of scientific studies these days. And he, he told me what I've, a little bit about what I've read personally, and that is um, that uh, there's a crisis about how true scientific studies are these days, especially in the social sciences. I read one quote from the public library of science where the writer was saying, at least half of the studies that we read can be proven to be false. I I ran that past Jason, he didn't think that it was quite that high, but nevertheless, there is a crisis, he mentioned, Richard, Richard Fenman, who wrote car- about or talked about cargo cult science in a speech at Caltech in one thousand nine hundred and seventy four When you think about science, though, it is such a dicey endeavor because in a good study there's so many uh, pitfalls that can happen, for example, there can simply be a failure to follow the scientific method or the researcher can uh, present a correlation between two things as causal when in fact it's not. There's the corruption of bias, of financial interest, political agenda. There's the need for a large sample size and a lot of the studies we read don't have a large sample size. There's the repeatability of the findings, that's a very important one, is can the findings be repeated And can a number of studies be done on the same question and get similar results? You have the placebo effect where people, you know, who uh, think they're taking a drug, for example, that's efficacious, and so they report, oh, I feel much better when when it's just the placebo effect. What about the weaknesses inherent in self-reporting how the study has affected Um, its participants. And then you have dropout rates um, of the follow-up studies that skew the numbers. You have statistically significant versus uh, statistically non-significant differences and will it be refuted by further studies. So, clearly science and the study, the scientific endeavor is fraught with difficulties And even good scientists warn not to accept uh, conclusions without a healthy skepticism, but not so with the word of God. Not so with the word of God. Proverbs 30 verse verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. And I can't get it out of my head that Jesus said, I am the truth. I am the truth. And so we can love science, but let's love the Word of God more. Amen? And let's allow and and embrace the Word of God as the the primary authority in our, our lives. Every major truth claim, whether in a movie, a book, on the news, in a textbook, in psychology, I believe is to be taken and tested by the word of God, submitted to it and examined by it. David said, thy word is truth. This is the first stone in my bag, and it's by far the largest. Stone number two is... The Lordship of Christ. We know we can't receive the Lord just as Savior, don't we? But we also need to receive Him as Lord. The word Lord means master or uh, denotes kingship and majesty. It means I bow to Him, I submit to Him, I submit to His will for my life, just as Jesus did. Remember how Jesus said, my food is is to do the will of him who sent me. He said, not my will, but thy will be done. And he said, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Let thy will be done. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. For me, submitting our will to God's will hour by hour day by day week in and week out is the essence of lordship it's possible i think to acknowledge god as king and as lord but not as my personal lord and um, a great antidote to this is first peter 3:15 that says In the first line, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Tozer, I've read this quote several times, but I think it's so powerful. Tozer says it this way. He said, in every Christian heart, there's a cross and a throne, and the Christian is on the throne till he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. Perhaps this is at the bottom of the backsliding and worldliness among gospel believers today. We want to be saved, but we insist that Christ continue to do all the dying. No cross for us, no dethronement, no dying. We remain king within the little kingdom of our soul and where. Our flimsy crowns with all the pride of a Caesar, but we doom ourselves to shadows and weakness and spiritual sterility. None of us do this perfectly, I know, but nevertheless, it is our will to do His will. This is the Lordship of Christ. The Lordship of Christ is my second stone. My third stone is a Christus Victor mentality. You guys remember that that phrase? Um, in 2 Corinthians 2.14, Paul writes these words, but thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Wasn't it beautiful to hear Al's... Um, encounter in the park and his discernment about that man's heart. A Christus Victor mentality to me me means that Christ is victorious, that Christ will be victorious through my life, and that as long as I cling closely to him, that my life will glorify him. Whether I'm in the valley of despair or on the mountaintop, my life will be glorified or will glorify him. It's amazing to me that Paul wrote these words because you remember how much Paul suffered. Um, Shortly after his conversion, the Lord said to Ananias, I will show Paul how much he must suffer for the gospel. He was a man uh, who uh, wrote of his sufferings in 2 Corinthians 11, I'll just briefly touch on these. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. He floated around in the sea for a night and a day. He said, I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, Dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship, many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. He said, I bear on my body the scars of Jesus. And I think he was referring to all the suffering that he had endured in Christ's name. And yet he's the one... Guys, he's the one who writes, thanks be to God, that he always leads us in his triumph. This verse speaks to me of a, a mindset, a mental and spiritual toughness that Jesus Christ will be glorified through me and through you, whether we're on the mountaintops or when they're in the valley of suffering. I can rejoice and have fullness of joy because God is going to be glorified through me. Not necessarily delivering me out of all the difficult circumstances, but even in the midst of them, He will be glorified. And honestly, beloved, that has become the only important thing. Maybe not the only, but compared to everything else, the only important thing. One of the biggest giants in my life has been fear. I was born uh, the third child, the baby of the family. How many of you are babies of the family? We're so sweet. <laughs> I, was, I was a fat little kid. Um, I was doted on. I had an ideal existence, except that my mom struggled with fear. And uh, I took on that somehow But I was just a fat happy kid that wanted everyone to be happy And uh, as I got older, I became afraid to hurt anyone's feelings Because then they weren't happy And I was anxious about that You know, I would just kind of get all uptight about Them being unhappy And so I became a slave as I got older still, to being liked. I wanted everybody to like me. Which morphed, kind of as I got older yet, into the need to be a hero for people. So my motive for living became, I want you to be happy, and I want to be the reason you are happy. In fact, I want you to know I'm the reason you're happy. And I want you to shower me with praise while I humbly dismiss it as unimportant, <laughs> how messed up is that? About this time, uh, about this time, God sent a fiery Mohawk Indian from New York for me to marry. Mohawk, by the way, means (laughs) man-eater. And it took me a little while to learn how to match her strength. She was uh, just an example of how direct she was. Before we got married, she said many times, Jim, what you see is what you get. And if you ever hit me, just know that I'm gone. And I understood that because she grew up in a, in a violent home. Um, so it was around year 20, I think, honey, we were lying in bed. My memory is, and out of the blue, she said, well, this was through my filter. She probably didn't say it quite this way, but what I heard was, you can hit me now. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I knew what she meant, that, that if I hit her, she, she felt that she wouldn't leave now. And I'm not very quick-witted, but this was one of those times where God gave me, I thought, a good response. And it, I said, um, well, honey, you know, that's great, but what am I going to work for for the next 20 years of our marriage? <laughs> and... uh you know, I didn't know, but I'm happy to report now that um, Laura is putty in my hands. <laughs> and I don't need her approval anymore, do I, honey? <laughs> then God took me into the field of counseling where if people are to make progress, if I want to truly help them, be happy, I'm going to have to say the hard thing, the painful thing, and in some cases the the thing that nobody else has the courage to say. And so I've had to learn that if they fire me, they fire me. If they sue me, they sue me. If I risk my license, I risk my license. I've had to learn that, that God is my refuge and my fortress. By God's grace and his gentle but tenacious discipline, I can honestly say, I'm no longer afraid. I'm no longer afraid, and I thank God for that. Now when fear tries to hit me, I find that I get mad. I hate fear, for God has not given me a spirit of fear, but a spirit of love and power and a disciplined mind. Then in 2015, as you know, Laura was diagnosed with cancer and as a result, God has purified us even farther or further where, whether in life or death or health or affliction, suffering or on easy street, our motive, our decision, our goal is to glorify the Lord, to be led in his triumph, his victory, to be glorified in all the earth. Laura and I have agreed agreed with Job that we will trust him when we cannot trace him. We've agreed with David who said, it's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your word. We've agreed with John who talked about tapping into God's love to a point where perfect love casts out fear. We agree with James that we're to count it all joy when we meet various trials knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect that we can be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And we agree with Paul who said, whether at at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. This is the third stone in my shepherd's bag, a stone that I very much wish for you to have. It's a Christus Victor mentality so that when adversity hits like a tsunami and the marker posts are all gone that you have guided your life by all around of you all around you is crashing and burning this particular stone i hope is in your bag as a flaming torch in your soul a christus victor mentality that christ will be glorified through your life whether you can see it or not. Jesus said, in this world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. The fourth stone in my bag is that God loves me. You remember the story of how Laura was thrown from a horse and she had a seizure and I rolled her over and looked into her eyes and she wasn't there. And later she told me that she'd made a short trip to heaven and that the Lord had, she was so blown away by how beautiful it was that she didn't want to come back, and, and yet the Lord said, you need to go back because Jim needs you. And, uh, you know, it's one thing to read in the Bible that God loves you, but it's another thing to have an experience like that where I can't almost describe how that affected me, that God really does know my name. He really does insist that I have what I need, that he's mindful of me. And maybe the most incredible thing is that, that I'm important to him. Um, I've had many experiences like that in life that have confirmed that God loves me. But there is something greater than our personal experiences and that is the historical event that Jesus came and died on the cross for us. By this event, God demonstrates his own love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. By personally receiving Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and submitting to him in believers' baptism, we're raised to newness of life, where the scriptures say that our true life is now hidden in Christ, in God. You remember how the Apostle Paul said, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And how the Apostle John, exiled on the island of Patmos late in life, said we have come to know and have believed the love God has for us. Oral Roberts used to say, I know that I know that I know that I know. Do you know that you know that you know that God loves you? Have you believed the love that God has for you? Are you convinced that nothing can separate you from the love of God? If not, I want to ask you to borrow mine. If this rock isn't in your shepherd's bag, borrow mine. I know that I know that I know that God loves me, and I know that I know that I know he loves you. You need to hear that God loves you. God loves me is my fourth giant killing stone. And then the last one is... You, my family of faith, you are my secret weapon. Um, in seminary, I, we had a very uh, quirky, funny, genuine professor named Dr. Tuttle. A long time ago, I may have told you how he would shout out down the hallway when he saw someone, I'll just use myself as an example, and he would say, Grinnell! Come out of that demon. (laughs) And I remember one class in particular where he he was sitting there just looking at us for the longest time. And then all of a sudden, he turned beet red with embarrassment. And he said, my wife has been gone for two weeks. I miss her. And last night, I ate a two-pound bag of M&M's. But the thing he said that uh, I remember the most, the thing he said that has shown itself to be true over and over and over about the Christian life is this, and that is, if you get alone, you get picked off. If you get alone, you get picked off. And the families that I've known over the years that have thought they've arrived and that they're too too cool for school, and they don't need to be a part of an organized local church, those families are spiritually decimated today. And so I want to say this church has kept me, you have kept me many times from doctrinal error, from sliding back into the secular humanism I grew up in, from bad attitudes and destructive thoughts. This church, several members of you that, pray for my wife's healing and comfort every day. How do I how do I thank God enough for that? Uh, This church was the nest where my four children saw real Christians living out Incredibly flawed, (laughs) real, genuine faith, and are today passionate followers of Jesus Christ, everyone. They found godly spouses and now raising a combined 14 godly children who also love the Lord with a genuine love. My TCF is my fifth stone to defeat the giants in my life, my secret weapon." Peter said, "...since you have in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart." And I would add the words, even more. So, I want to ask, what are the stones in your shepherd's bag? What are those foundational things that God has worked into your spirits to such a depth that you know that you know that you know them to be true? They're your weapons. Again, we're each unique, with a unique relationship with the Lord. Your stones are certainly not exactly the same as mine, but would you ponder some what stones are in your shepherd's bag? Maybe God has called you to be an intercessor. You know that's part of who you are. A spiritual warrior, a worshiper, an encourager, a teacher, an evangelist, a slave of Christ. What are the things he's built into your life? If you're not sure of the stones in your shepherd's bag, I want to invite you to borrow some of mine. Stones that were forged here over time, and have protected me from the giants of the land, as well as our cunning adversary. So may God bless you in this message for his eternal purposes. Amen.